Well, good morning, and happy Independence Day weekend to you. Um, and for those of you who are Canadian, same thing to you as well. Um, I am uh, thrilled to be here today, and uh, thrilled to be given the opportunity to come and continue our series in Daniel chapter 5 um, as we examine what it is that God might have to say to us. Um, I did some mathematics earlier this week, and judging by the fact that just this past spring I celebrated, I didn't really go to the party that they had, but I still celebrated, you know, on my own, um, my 20-year high school reunion. Congratulations, way to go, been out of high school for that long. Um, then I did the calculation to figure out just how long I've been doing this gig called vocational ministry. Um, and for 17 years, you know, God's allowed me this opportunity to be um, a pastor in a local church and to get to serve the body of Christ. And it's been really exciting for me. I started that journey as a youth pastor working with middle school and high school kids. Um, and it is true, while you can take the youth minister out of youth ministry, you can never take youth ministry out of the youth minister. And you'll know that in just a moment because I'm going to share with you really one of the greatest gifts that God has given me in my lifetime of ministry. Um, it happened just before we moved here. I'd been a youth pastor for 12 years. Um, and the last church that I served in as student pastor before I moved to Tennessee nine years ago um, was a church in Florida. And we lived really close to the beach. And we would often gather with friends and people in our church um, over to um, the ocean where we would have cookouts and people would celebrate. And what you have to know about these cookouts is that they were often hosted by a couple named Jeff and Rebecca. And Jeff and Rebecca, wherever they would go, they would bring their dog named Hawkeye. Now, Hawkeye was, no matter what you say about your own dog, the smartest dog you've ever met. Literally the most obedient dog on the planet. We would often have these men's breakfasts at the church where we would all gather and pray and eat breakfast together. And I would sometimes come out of that breakfast with an extra piece of bacon or a side of sausage. And I would go to Hawkeye, who was sitting in the back of Jeff's truck. Never would he get out until Jeff told him that he could. And I would stand on the side of it and I would say, Hawkeye, you want some bacon? And Hawkeye would stare at me from that truck and there was nothing getting him out of it until Jeff said, Hawkeye, come. And then Hawkeye could come have the bacon. If a squirrel, like this is just part of the illustration that wasn't really existent because there were no squirrels where we lived. But if a squirrel had run by that truck or that day on the beach and Hawkeye saw that squirrel, he would not chase the squirrel unless Jeff looked at him and said, Hawkeye, you can go chase that squirrel. Because literally the dog did whatever he was told, whenever he was told it, and only what he was told. Seriously, the most obedient dog on the planet. But we're having a cookout on the beach. Everybody's enjoying their hamburgers and their hot dogs and whatever salads and corn on the cob and fruit dishes that people had bought together to celebrate that day. And Hawkeye was, of course, with us and he was just roaming around and didn't have to be on a leash because there was no leash law on this part of the beach and it didn't matter because Hawkeye would not have run away anyway. And so Hawkeye was just standing there and out of the corner of my eye, just as I go to take a bite of that burger, I see Hawkeye do this motion. And then Hawkeye proceeds to lay there on the beach, the largest pile of vomit I've ever seen. <laughs> and without skipping a beat, he did what all dogs do right after they vomit. He started to eat it. Now, before you accuse me of ruining your 4th of July cookouts, I need you to know that in that minute, after my gag reflux settled, I looked up to the heavens and thanked the Lord above for that instance in my life, because that was a gift to any Bible-believing Christian, especially a youth pastor. Even though that's not my main job anymore, I'm still afforded opportunities to go and teach in other camps and retreats for kids and students throughout the summer. I've got a couple more coming up. And let me tell you, I've used that story in every camp that I've been to so far this summer, and I'm going to use that story in every camp that I will go to before this summer ends because it makes so much sense to us. One of my life verses for student ministry is Proverbs 26:11 that says, As a dog returns to lick its vomit... 
don't be mad, it's in the Bible. So a fool repeats his folly. When the God of this great universe wanted to preserve a word for us so that we would understand what it's literally like for a person to repeat the same mistakes over and over and over and over and over again, he gave us the mental image of a dog eating its own throw up. And I, as a youth pastor, was sitting there, this is the best present that you could have given me because as I stand in front of youth groups and camps all over the place, I'm gonna get to tell that story and let them know that scripture is real. You see, God has in his design created us as a people who would hopefully learn from our mistakes. And not just that, because 1 Corinthians 10.6 is a jumping off point for us today because it reads, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. We know that the Old Testament, the stories that are preserved for us, exist for countless reasons because God's a great multitasker. But here's one of them right here laid out by the Apostle Paul that says, all of that stuff happened. All of these Old Testament stories that we as Jews read and memorize, and now we're inviting the Gentiles to come along for the journey so that you can understand these stories too. All of them are there for a reason that we might not repeat the same mistakes of our ancestors. You see, as a parent, and lots of you are parents too, you don't want your kids to just learn from their mistakes, Proverbs 26, 11. Quit doing the same stuff over and over again. You want them to learn from your mistakes too and not repeat some of the junk that you've experienced in life. And not only that, do we want to raise up a generation who doesn't repeat their same mistakes over and over again, but also learns from mine, yours, us as a parental generation of people who have made lots of mistakes, we want them to learn from, from these words too. To not repeat the evils that have been done in the Old Testament against Almighty God. We want to learn from this stuff. And some of the greatest things that we can learn from, and it's a great jumping off point for us today, come from the book of Daniel. If you have your Bibles today, and I invite you to do so, open them up to Daniel chapter 5. We're going to do a lot of cross-referencing today, and I hope that that's an illustration for you that it is not enough for us as people who say that we like this word, to just read sections of it and say, oh, that was a great word. We gotta dive deep and we've got to study and we've got to digest and we've got to understand that not just reading Daniel chapter five by itself makes a lot of sense for us, but we've gotta unpack it in light of 1 Corinthians 10, six. That we've gotta read Daniel chapter one, two, three, four, five, and six in light of Proverbs 26, 11. That we've got to understand that this is a holistic word for us and that God has given it so that we might know him and understand him and follow him better. So I'll pop out some cross-references today, and I invite you to write them down in your margins so that later on this week, when I know you do, you go back and study what we've talked about. You can go back to those references, understanding what it is that God's saying to us in the book of Daniel, but that's also present in places like Hebrews 4.12. God has a word for us today. This Babylon that Daniel lived in, pressing around on all sides, presses in on us too. And this Babylonian mindset is present, and it was present all the way from the beginning in Genesis chapter 11 when the people gathered in a city of Ur of the Chaldeans, and they decided to build a tower called the Tower of Babel, Babylon, for themselves. And they said in Genesis chapter 11, let us build a tower for ourselves that we may make our name known. It was all about them. And that mindset has continued into the life of Babylon. When just one chapter ago, last week, we studied Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, verse 29. He says, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. In verse 30, and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Babylon is all about self. Babylon is all about 
my glory. Babylon is all about my name. Babylon is all about my selfishness. And we live in a world that's not called Babylon, but is very much Babylon today. The mindset is present for us. About 30 years have passed from Daniel chapter 4 to Daniel chapter 5, from the moment when Nebuchadnezzar regained his sanity. About 23 years have passed since he died and passed the throne on to six or seven rulers, one of them being the king Nabonidus. And Nabonidus had a son named Belshazzar, and while Nabonidus wasn't dead and letting Belshazzar rise to the throne, Nabonidus was on working the outermost parts of the kingdom as the Persians threatened to conquer so while on his military excursions, preserving the sanctity of his kingdom, he left his son, Belshazzar, in charge of his holy city of Babylon. So Belshazzar was most likely Nebuchadnezzar's grandson or great-grandson. And he clearly didn't know Nebuchadnezzar's final recorded words from chapter 4, which said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Belshazzar likely didn't know those words, or else he wouldn't do what Belshazzar did. The key theme for us understanding the book of Daniel today is that God is sovereign and in control, even over our exile. And the key question for us running through all of the chapters that we've read so far is, just how Babylonian are we willing to be? How little of our life are we preserving for the control and the lordship of Jesus Christ? And how much are we turning it over freely to Babylon in this world? You see, we say this often in the life of the church. God has a plan for your life, and he does. But sometimes we forget that there is an enemy who has a plan for our lives too. His, his plan is to render our worship hypocrisy and to render our witness for the glory of God's kingdom useless. He has an unholy plan for our lives. His plan for Daniel in chapter 1 was to eat the king's fine food. His plan for Daniel in chapter 2 was to uh, assess the dream, but to say it came from the power of the magicians and the unholy false idol gods. His plan for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3 was to bow down before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had built. And if they weren't going to bow down before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar has built, his plan for them was to burn in that fire. The enemy in this world has a plan for our lives. And it's a plan to discredit our witness. And it's a plan to render our worship to be hypocrisy and useless before God. And this is the first point in your notes. It's clear is that we have an enemy. And evil in this world always, always, always seeks to defile that which God has declared as holy. His goal is to take that which God has declared holy and to defile it, to discredit it, to render it sinful. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, we read these words. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver of Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. If those sound familiar, they should. They're from the statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed that forecast for us the kingdoms of this world. There's an enemy in this world. 
an evil one that seeks to defile that which God has declared holy. And in this case, it was these artifacts. Where did they come from? These are the artifacts that Nebuchadnezzar had brought out of Judah after he destroyed the temple. And if you want to know how special these are, here's what one of the commentaries that I read this week said. Although the exact date of the Jewish exodus from Egypt is still in somewhat of a dispute, yeah, we know that, the books of Exodus and Numbers indicate that approximately 600,000 able-bodied men above the age of 20, not to even count all the women and children, made the 40-year journey from the Nile Delta to the east side of the Jordan River. During their wilderness wanderings, the people of Israel received the Ten Commandments along with other various laws, detailed laws, regulations, and instructions. They were delivered to Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses was also instructed to construct a large portable tabernacle or tent entrusted to the care of the priest of Aaron. A detailed description of that tabernacle is given in Exodus chapter 25, verse chapter 30, and it was built with free will offerings, free will offerings donated by the people in such generous amounts that they had in excess of what it would take to construct that tabernacle. Where did they get those resources? Where did they get those resources? In Exodus chapter 12, verse 35, it says that the Jews were given gold, silver, and ornaments by the Egyptians at the time of their departure from Egypt. God provided it. He provided it in strodes because it says that they walked out with a total amount of gold that exceeded one ton, with silver that exceeded three and three quarter tons, with bronze that exceeded two and a half tons. At today's prices, the gold and silver alone that were used to construct the tabernacle and all the artifacts that went into it by Moses would have exceeded $13 million. God provided it. And that very provision that God had given them would construct the artifacts that God would anoint. Read with me a Leviticus chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. It says, Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it, and he consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils at the basin and the lamp on its stand to consecrate them. To consecrate it. To set it apart. To make it holy for his special purpose and his special use. These were the artifacts, the ones that were anointed by Moses, that were kidnapped by Nebuchadnezzar and carted off to his house where he would store them in a storehouse. And for 65 years between Nebuchadnezzar's takeover of the city all the way to Belshazzar, these artifacts have remained in storage. Sometimes I don't even want to go get my Christmas decorations after they've sat for 11 months much less stuff that's been there for 65 plus years. Sometimes my wife, Susan, who I love dearly, we've been married for 16 years, I tell her that her purse looks like an episode of Hoarders Buried Alive. And she says, go get the keys, they're in my purse, and I don't even want to go inside because it looks scary, much less if they'd been there for 65 years. God had designed these artifacts for a special, unique, significant purpose prescribed for his worship and his worship alone. And not only were they carted off to live in the house of a pagan king, now they were brought out by his pagan grandson and used in an unholy worship practice. That word consecrate in Leviticus chapter 8 is the word kadash, and it means to set apart, to make holy. That word holy in Leviticus chapter 8 is the word kadosh. It's the same root, and it literally means for God's use. It's for him. It's for his name. 
And before we understand that that's just these inanimate objects that they'd used in their worship practices, we have to understand that because of the New Testament and the risen Lord Jesus Christ, that this is us too. Paul writes to the Ephesians church in chapter 1, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Our purpose as believers is not to be arrogant, angry defenders of this word, but instead to be beautiful reflections of it. We are meant to be set apart and to be holy and to reflect the character and the nature of God. I'm always amazed at when believers get loud and obnoxious and aggressive with our truth, defenders of our truth, sold out proclaimers of gospel truth. Amen for the conviction. But listen, us standing on truth starts and ends with being set apart. We are to be different. In that moment, if you continue to read through Daniel chapter 5, you'll know exactly what happened, that in the middle of that unholy, honestly drunken orgy, a hand appeared and began to write in the plaster on the wall a message for Belshazzar and his men. And it made him lose his color in his face, and it made him shake to the bone not knowing what it meant. And he did what his predecessors had done. He called in the magicians and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans to come and read the message and interpret it for him. But no one could be found, we've heard that story before, who could interpret God's message. And so then we pick up in verse 10. It says, The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, really his grandfather, great-grandfather, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, verse 13. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. First of all, what a reputation. Second of all, History records for us that Daniel has now been in Babylon for 65 years. He spent the vast majority of his life there having been carted off from Judah when he was only barely 15 years old. He spent all of this time in Babylon. He's accrued accolades in Babylon. He's made a name for himself in Babylon. He's risen to power and authority under Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And yet in this moment, he's still remembered and regarded as an exile. And Belteshazzar almost Belshazzar, almost as an insult, says to him, you're the exile. But for Daniel, that wouldn't have been an insult. That would have been a badge of honor because Babylon, although he had been in Babylon, was not his home. His home was in a kingdom that did not exist there. And you and I, as people who understand that we are to be set apart and that standing on truth starts with being set apart, it starts with being different, it starts with being preserved for a special use that is only to bring worship and honor and glory to the risen Lord, here's the deal about Daniel. He may have been in Babylon, but Babylon was not in him. You see, it is possible to live a lifetime in this world but to not be of this world. And oh, if that were to be our reputation. 
to live here, to be a part of here, the way, the dream, the mentality, the culture, but to not be of that way, dream, mentality, culture. We pick back up in verse 17 with Daniel's response. It says, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, because Belshazzar was going to give him purple and allow him to wear crowns and allow him to be the third highest ruler in the kingdom because, you know, his father Nabonidus was the first highest ruler in the kingdom and he, Belshazzar, was the second highest ruler in the kingdom and Daniel could have been the third, but he says no. Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Who he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. That's what happened in Daniel chapter 4. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. God's word is a gift to us that helps us to know him better. You can cross out that word know and put trust. God's word is a gift to us that helps us trust him better. You can cross out that word trust and put the word worship. God's word is a gift to us that helps us to worship him better. You can cross out that word worship and put follow or obey. God's word is a gift to us that helps us follow and obey him better. Here's what happened. And you, his son, verse 22, Have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Though you knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Though you knew what he declared as some of his last recorded words. Though you knew all this. Verse 23, but you have lifted yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and of gold and of bronze, iron, wood and stone which do not see or hear or know. You have worshipped the inanimate objects of this world instead of worshipping the one who created the inanimate objects of this world. He continues, but the God in whose hand is your breath, the God who makes the world spin on its axis, the God who makes the sun rise up brand new every morning, the God who does not promise us breath, but puts it in there fresh for us each day. That God, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. God's word is full of warnings for us. God's word is full of instructions for us. God's word is full of a better way for us if we would just humble ourselves and take it. But do we heed it? Do we learn from it? Or do we repeat the countless mistakes that are in it? 1 Corinthians 10, 6, Proverbs 26, 11. God gave a warning to Belshazzar. And it's a warning for you and I. That handwriting on the wall didn't just send a message to the king. It sends a message to us. Verse 24 says, Then from his presence, that's God's presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. 
And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, from Parsin, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Mene, I am has numbered your days. For us, it means the same. I am has numbered our days. Cross-reference, Job 14, 5. God of this universe says to us, since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. You and I have an expiration date. We have a promised number of days. We don't know if we're going to be given 38 years or 88 years. We don't know if the baby that we rock to sleep at night is going to live to breathe another day or if they are going to go old and be 112 years old before they die. We don't know that. We're not given that kind of forecast foreshadowing into the future. We don't know if we're going to wake up tomorrow. We don't know if we're going to get to Daniel chapter 6 next week. There is an expiration date on our lives. There is an expiration date on the chances that we have to repent of our sin and come to saving faith in Jesus Christ who is our Lord and Savior. There is an expiration date on what we as believers have as an opportunity to serve and to grow this kingdom. We have a team in Moldova right now and another one that just came back. Many are already planning their next year's trip. We don't know if we're going to get it. We have a team of ministers at this church who are busy recruiting leaders for the fall to go and teach children stories from God's word in really creative ways, mind you, but we don't know if we're going to have another opportunity to do that. Are you going to wait till next year when your kids are older? When serving becomes easier? When it fits your schedule better? We don't know if we have that. There is an expiration date to our opportunities to repent of our sin. There is an expiration date to the opportunities that we have to serve and grow this kingdom. We, many of us, have people that we know and love that are on a really wide path that leads to destruction. We don't know how many more chances we're going to have to communicate the truth of God's word in their lives. Our days are numbered. Belshazzar didn't know that. I hope that we do. Tekel, I am, he knows what we've done. We're weighed. He sees us too. And the same pronouncement over Belshazzar is the same pronouncement over us. It's in Romans chapter 3, starting with verse 11. It says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It goes on to say in chapter 3 of Romans, verse 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We could say that all of Romans 3 means tekel, that we have been weighed and that we are found wanting. And if it were not the, the saving grace of Jesus Christ dying in our place, we would deserve that same death. Our days are numbered. We've been weighed. We are lacking. And there is a division that will come. Parson, I am acts to divide. Not just the kingdom from Belshazzar, but in our lives too. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God 
This word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of our soul and of the spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. We know that God sees our hearts, and he knows what's in them, and he knows if they're representative of a faith that believes in Jesus Christ or if they are pursuing the things of this world. There will be a division one day, Matthew chapter 25 says, and sheep will go over here and goats will go over here. One category of people are people that knew him, and one category of people are people that didn't. There's an expiration date on our lives. We have been weighed and found wanting, and there will be a division, and I hope we land on the side of Christ. Belshazzar didn't, because in Daniel chapter 5, verse 31, it reads, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. You know what that says to us, like so many other passages of scripture say to us, it says, God's word always will. Will what come true? It will always come true. It, it will always be factual. It will always be present. It will always be real in our lives. That very night it came true for Belshazzar, and we don't know which night it's going to come true for us. My hope is that we will heed it. And that we will understand that while the enemy of this world has an unholy purpose for our lives, that the creator of this world has a holy purpose for us to be set apart, to know his son and to make him known. There is a hope that comes from God's word always will. And it's that the great God of this universe can take and restore to holiness that which was previously made unclean. He can restore to holiness that which was made unclean. Those artifacts because Cyrus the Persian became the leader and because in just five years he allowed the exiles to return home to Judah. And in Ezra chapter one, we learned that they're able to take the artifacts, the ones that Nebuchadnezzar kidnapped, the one that Belshazzar drank from, they're able to take it back to a newly constructed temple in the land of Judah. And Ezra chapter eight, verse 28 through 29 speaks beautiful words to us because it says, you are holy to the Lord and the vessels are holy and the silver and the gold are a free will offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers of the house of Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. Why is this a good word for us? Because it communicates to us that the parts of our lives which have been defiled and made unholy and unclean can be restored to holiness again. Babylon around us cannot convert us, but oh, how it seeks to destroy us. And we have to know that as children of the living, breathing God, Though that sin and darkness and the evil one in this world can beguile us and defile us for a season, he can never have those of us who are in Christ. That means that addiction and infidelity and depression and anxiety and sin and temptation and all of the times that we succumb to it cannot hold us we can be made holy again. Anything that was previously marred by sin can be made clean again by the forgiveness and the restoration that's found only in our faith through Jesus. Because God's design, no matter what the world tells us, no matter what false promises we succumb to, God's design is always deliverance. 
And it's not just a single rescue. It's a lifetime of bringing us back in, of watching us veer off and allowing us to return. Psalm 40, verse 17 is beautiful for us. It says, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. You know, we attribute the Psalms to Israel, to God's people. We ascribe most of them to King David, their most famous king. And in this moment, this is after David was chosen king. This is after he was declared to be a man after God's own heart. This was after he was selected and loved and used by Almighty God. But this is also after he had succumbed to sin. And we learn from this. Our need for God never wears off. And he never tires from rescuing us and making us clean again. We're not the Daniel in this story. We're certainly not the Belshazzar in this story. We're the temple artifacts. And the Babylon in this world seeks to defile us and make us unclean, useless to God. But we serve a risen Savior who can restore us to our rightful place of worship in his kingdom. We can be like Daniel, who was in Babylon, but who had no Babylon in him. It comes from learning from this word and seeking to keep it, to heed it, not repeat the mistakes in it, trusting that there is a God in this universe who has a greater purpose for our lives than anything that we could imagine. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we are blown away by your word and in awe of your word that speaks a truth to us. On behalf of humans in here today, God, I declare that there are moments in our lives when we succumb to the Babylon in this world, when we allow ourselves to be defiled by sin, where we allowed ourselves to be defiled by jealousy, defiled by greed, defiled by temptation and take on the Babylonian mindset that says this world is all about us. And oh God, we desire nothing more than to be made clean and righteous again before you. Friends, we enter into a time of response now where we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would move in this place freely in and out of our hearts so that we might be sensitive to the word that God is saying to us. For some, that means repentance of sin. To declare to God that we are sorry for the ways in which Babylon has encroached on our spirits. And to ask for the forgiveness that only Christ can give. For some, that means turning to Jesus for salvation. For the first time in life, understanding that because we are sinners in need of forgiveness, our lives have been measured and we have been found wanting. And only by the grace of God can we have and inherit eternal life for others it's a call to action because we are now fully aware of the fact that our days are numbered and that we don't know if tomorrow's coming and we are not sure of the opportunities that we are going to have to repent or the opportunities that we are going to have to serve and expand this kingdom by communicating the life changing message of Jesus Christ to others that we know and love 
in whatever way that the Holy Spirit of God is calling you to respond, I invite you to do that. Men and women from our ASICs and pastoral care ministry team are moving to the outsides of the auditorium to receive people and to pray with them. And if today would be a day that you would like to be prayed with and to be prayed for, then I invite you to move. If this space in front of me could become a, a makeshift altar where you come and kneel before the Lord and pray to him, asking the God of this universe to divide you and separate you from the sinful things that have marred your life and to make you clean and holy again, then I invite that to be a space that you respond. And whatever we do, God, we ask that it would be pleasing and worship to you. As you move, God, we pray that your people would respond and that you would be pleased with the response. Thank you, God, for loving us when we were unlovely and being willing to, willing to clean up that in us, uh, which is so unclean. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your holy and powerful, precious name that we pray. Amen.